Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Deborah Palestron. Deb is a partner with 5AM Ventures and the executive chair of the 459 Initiative. 5AM invests in early-stage startups working on a variety of novel biological targets and some of the emerging new treatment modalities, gene therapy, gene editing, oligonucleotides, etc. As the name suggests, it's not afraid to get involved in companies in very early days when they are high-risk, high-reward propositions. Deb comes to this venture work with a deep scientific background and significant hands-on operating experience. She got her PhD in structural biology at Columbia University and then eventually made the move to industry at the Novartis Institutes of Biomedical Research in the mid-2000s. She found her way into the Boston biotech startup world in the 2010s and was a part of building a series of ambitious companies, Blueprint Medicines, Editas Medicine, and Relay Therapeutics included. We talk in this episode about Deb's career journey, about how she and her partners think about creating companies, and what areas of opportunity she sees in science and medicine. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Occam Global. Occam Global is an international professional services firm focusing on executive recruitment, organizational development, and board construction. The firm's clientele emphasized intensely purposeful and broadly accomplished entrepreneurs and visionary investors in the life sciences. Occam Global augments such extraordinary and committed individuals in building high-performing executive teams and assembling appropriate governance structures. Occam serves such opportune sectors as cell gene therapy, neuroscience, gene editing, the intersection of AI and machine learning, and drug discovery and development. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. That's www.occam-global.com slash long run. Now, please join me and Deb Palestron on the long run. Deb Palestron, welcome to the long run. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's great to be here. So, Deb, I don't know if you know this, but you have the distinction of being the first guest on the long run that I have shared chocolate-covered espresso beans with on the trail. They are amazing. They give you just the right sweetness and caffeine to keep you going on those long mountain tucks. Yes, you need a little boost on your way up to Mount Adams on day two. Now, this is the present for those who are not getting the inside joke. This is a reference to the Presidential Traverse. Deb was a two-time participant in the Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares, the big fundraising event that I do each year for that nonprofit organization that fights poverty in Boston and four other cities around the country. So just really thankful for your participation, your willingness to go to bat for other people. It is an amazing organization. So I'm thrilled to participate and look forward to everything that LSC continues to do. Great. So I want to ask a little bit about you and your career and your investing interests today. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you from, Deb? I am from Southern California. So I grew up in Malibu. I moved there from LA when my parents divorced when I was about six years old. Malibu. Now that sounds pretty glamorous. (laughs) I was not in the fancy parts of Malibu. I was in rural Malibu with goats and chicken, chickens and a pony in my backyard that I ra- rode around town in. So it was not beachfront fancy Malibu at all. Okay. Okay. And what kind of schools did you attend there? I went to the public school, Malibu Park Junior High or elementary and then junior high school. And then actually when I went to high school, At that time, there was not a high school in Malibu, so I bused 45 minutes into Santa Monica to go to Santa Monica High School. Huh. Okay. So public schools, where did your spark for science come from at any point along this journey? Yeah, so I think it started with the riding the ponies around the backyard. I always wanted to be a veterinarian, and so I immediately had in my mind that I needed to do early med school, pre-med, pre-vet work. And so always wanted to work in labs and engage with science from that perspective with the goal of being a vet. Cool. So did you end up going to vet school? 
I did not. Early on in that experience, I did do a summer program at Tufts Vet School, a six-week program, and and realized that I have really bad allergies. And so while I could tap it down with Benadryl on a daily basis in my backyard, it was not enough to have that as a constant thing to keep my allergies in check if I were to be a vet. So I had to shift my focus away from vet school. That's a pretty good reason to shift gears. So what did you decide to study in, while staying in science? Yeah. So my first inclination, I think the obvious path when I couldn't be a vet was to think about med school. Um, and so I continued on in that path, thinking about being a physician and stuck with science in that regard. And over time, continued to work in labs and volunteer in like the AIDS clinic at UCLA and various places to get exposure to what it would be like to be in medicine. That was the path I was generally on. I took a little bit of a turn later on. So you're in labs, but you decided that you didn't really want to be a physician. Why not? Yeah, so that was the experience I had at the UCLA Care Clinic, which was an, is an amazing place. But I really had been working in labs. And when I did that comparison of being in a clinic and seeing patients and that, there I was just shadowing and helping take notes during some of the meetings, I just really, it wasn't as enthralling to me as the experimental work I was doing in the labs. I really felt like the bench work was really exciting, having very much a hands-on experience in terms of running an experiment and seeing the data and seeing the results. And I didn't have that same satisfaction from the individual patient visits, even though I realize it's incredibly important. It just wasn't resonating with me personally. So looking at data, being meticulous, trying something with an experiment, seeing when it doesn't work, adjusting the parameters, you loved all this stuff. I loved that stuff. That was super fun. Okay. So you ended up studying structural biology in graduate school, and I think that work continued later. What was it that you loved about structural biology? Yeah, this was very much a seeing is believing moment. I think in all of my previous lab work, it was generating a data set and then a lot of inference. You'd see a band in the gel. You would do three more experiments to hone in on what that band actually meant. Um, at the end of the day with structural biology, you saw an electron density map. And so you actually knew that was where your protein was. And you actually had this seeing is believing moment of, wait, that is, that's actually the structure of the protein. And now it's not guesswork. It's not super inferred. It's the data that's supporting that. Seeing is believing. Very vivid and precise, not a little vague. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Not a lot of room for error when there was you didn't see it. And so you knew where you had low confidence regions, which was really, again, the, the seeing is believing reiterated in structural biology. Okay. Okay. You were pretty successful as a young scientist. I know you, you scored a Damon Runyon scholarship for your postdoc, moved out to Scripps, went to work on IL-2, which pretty you know, significant molecules these days people are working on again for cancer. Why did you end up or how did you end up moving from academic science world over to industry? <laughs> yes, this is a great but sad story for me. I was scooped. It happens and it sucks really badly. And so I was scooped in my postdoc on that structure after working a long time on it and feeling pretty confident knowing that folks had been trying to pursue that structure for so many years and failed. So I felt like I was really close. And it really just took the wings out of my sails for, uh, or the, sorry, the wind out of my sails for academic science at that time. I just, I was frustrated. I really just wanted to do great work that felt like it was having an impact. And I felt just very deflated that getting scooped could have such a big career impact. And yet I was still trying to contribute to the scientific literature and foundation of science. And it wasn't going to have as big of an impact as I wanted. How many years had you worked on trying to get that structure? So that structure, I had come in three years on that, but that structure had, that project had been ongoing in the lab for 12 years before I joined. You looked at this, it had been going on for 12 years. You spent three years of your life on this, and then you got to the end and you found that there's, I'm not going to be the first author on any big nature paper. 
Exactly. And coming off of a Damon Runyon fellowship and really feeling like I was in a great scenario to be this great academic. And at that time in structural biology, the nature paper, the cell paper, the science paper, that was what you were going for. I just felt like maybe my priorities weren't quite aligned with with what that was, which was getting a cover of a a journal. So at that point, I was taking a, a beat and thinking about what made sense to do next. Okay, so you you become open to other ideas. How did the Novartis opportunity present itself? Yeah, this was great. So Damon Ranyan Cancer Research Fellowship is a great group, and they have these off-site meetings every other year for their fellows where you connect with other fellows. Um, and at these meetings, pharma, some pharma folks will come and try to recruit you. So I was being recruited by another pharma, not by Niber. And not by Novartis. And and I had gotten a, a couple of interviews set up at this other pharma. And I thought to myself, I'd better have a comparison interview in place because I just wanted to ensure that I knew what the options were in front of me. So that application was to Niber. I thought it was to GNF across the street when I applied. I was at Scripps. So I thought it was just to elaborate across the street. It would be really easy to access. But it turned out it was to Novartis when they were launching up their Cambridge site here in Boston. Yeah. So you probably thought, oh, do I really want to go to the East Coast where it's cold? Turned out to be a pretty good move, actually. Yeah. I went out for that interview and I was just blown away. I thought Niber was a phenomenal place. I could do the science that felt very academic minded. I could do molecular biology, essentially the entire gene to structure piece of structural biology, which is phenomenal, had really great projects in front of me. The group of people there were great. So I just felt it was everything I was hoping for in a great lab with resources to, to support my science. And then in, in Cambridge, which I had never, had actually never been to Cambridge before. So in Cambridge, which was a, a phenomenal place to be. What year was this? My interview was 2003, um, but I started in 2004. Okay. So you really saw NIBERT, now that's Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. You saw this as just a really good place to do science, a different environment with great colleagues and more resources. Yes, exactly. It was phenomenal. So you ended up staying there for about six years. How did you end up transitioning out of a large pharma scientific environment and toward startup world? Yeah, because they're actually almost seven years. And that was an interesting point in time. So when I came to Boston, I met my husband. My husband had been a resident at the Beth Israel, and he had just left to start a company. Uh, And so he was coming out, I mean, he was coming home, showing me Series A documents and tap tables and things that I had never been exposed to before. So During that time when I was at Novartis, I actually decided to do an MBA nights and weekends just to learn that vocabulary that I had not known and that he was talking about all the time. And through that, I was exposed to this other side of the business and had the good fortune of being pushed to go do a sabbatical with the Strategic Alliances Group at Novartis and get exposure to this other side of the business. So here again is another type of creature, another type of entity for doing science. There's academia, there's large pharma, and then there's, as I'm calling it, startup world. (laughs) What was it that attracted you other than there's just a lot to learn? As you say, your husband showed you a bunch of these things about how startups are created, but what did you think about it as a place for doing science? Yeah, I think I was at this point in time with my work at Novartis, where I was doing well, I was getting promoted, I was being requested on several projects. I had this perspective that I was going to be a career crystallographer if I stayed in there. And so the point you just said, I just had this exposure to, wait, there's this entire other side of the business and, and I can use my science to make some really interesting decisions that will help new companies or that could be used in new companies or potentially create new medicines that aren't happening in the labs that I'm directly working in. It was sort of a the first inclination I got around scaling my impact and the ability to scale my own impact in an organization. Hearing you describe that, it reminds me of a comment Lee Hood made when I was working on the book about him, and that was that 
new ideas need new organizations. And so if you get to be really good at a certain kind of thing, like crystallography, structural biology for small molecule drug design, for instance, you can get really on that narrow path for an entire career. And then maybe <laughs> you miss out on things like CRISPR, <laughs> or just to pick one example, a whole bunch of other things that are just naturally, they need a new organization with all different kind of soil and water and oxygen in order for them to grow. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other angle of this is once you've been in a big organization like Novartis, or you have all of these experiences that you can draw upon that are really leverageable. And I think many folks don't appreciate how much one can leverage those experiences. So I knew what a successful drug discovery team needs to look like. Yes, the individual science may be different, but I know the different components, what needs to be put together. I know what a high-functioning team looks like. Just from those experiences, you can then appreciate and realize, okay, I can translate that knowledge into a new company that doesn't have those things and really have a large impact and be super supportive of what that next focus area could be. Hearing you describe this and knowing that it was about seven years, it almost sounds like you got a second PhD in like how industry works and <laughs> so that you were then ready to go work in a startup by the end of this. Or certainly you were you had a different set of capabilities then than you would have straight out of your postdoc. For sure. Absolutely. It's the life experience MBA, I guess. Even though I went and did a, a real one, it's the other one. That is important. <laughs> okay. So how did you get started there at, I guess it was Third Rock Ventures 2010? So as I mentioned, I did that sabbatical in the business development group at Novartis. And one of the projects I worked on there was putting together a database. It was before we had this in the computer system, a database of all of the venture capital firms that Novartis was chatting with and their portfolio companies and trying to get up to date on what those relationships and latest conversations were. And the goal of what that was at JP Morgan, which is this big conference, when that venture group came in, you could essentially open to the page and say, I know the latest conversation with portfolio company X was with this person on this date, and this is where it landed. So it just got everyone onto the same page in those discussions. As a reward for doing that, I got to go to the JP Morgan conference with Novartis and sit at table. And that's when I got to meet all these venture capital firms. And that includes Third Rock, as well as many others. And through that relationship or through that meeting, I, I networked and just formed some relationships with several folks at these VCs. And so when Third Rock was raising their second fund, a couple of folks had reached out to me and said, hey, Deb, we're going to hire some associates for the second fund. Do you know anyone that would be interested in joining? Again, this is a whole other side of the business that you probably never saw or thought about in graduate school. You sit down for 30, probably 60 minutes, I hope, <laughs> in a hotel at J.P. Morgan and have a really focused and intense conversation about biology, the, op the clinical opportunity, markets, how venture capitalists think. You, that's where you got that exposure. Yeah, exactly. And I had, non I had very little of that before. I had only had it through my husband coming home and talking about it in his experiences. So I had not seen that, especially not in biotech, which was not his space. Okay, so you start making relationships. One of them is with Third Rock Ventures. You end up going to work there. What were you asked to do in the beginning and how did it evolve? Yeah, so the first couple projects I came in on were spot on with my scientific background. So the first thing I worked on was what became Blueprint Medicines. A couple of EIRs that were working on the project, along with Alexis Borisi, who was the, the partner at Third Rock who was driving that, were the core team on that. And it is a big structural biology play around kinases and really understanding super how to develop super selective kinase inhibitors as well as appropriately annotate them across the kinome. At that point, there was just a lot of novel biology being discovered across the kinome in terms of driver mutations. And so that fit right in with what I had been doing. I knew, again, what a successful project team and drug discovery on a kinase project needed to look like. I know I knew you needed to have computation, you needed to have assays and biology, you needed to have you know, the PK tox components, all the pieces of the puzzle that fit together. And so I was well positioned to be the senior associate and help drive that research plan and, 
and that bottoms up development of that plan that ultimately became Blueprint Medicines. And you probably saw the people component and how important that was early on too. I'm thinking about my first meetings with Blueprint and you meet Jeff Albers and Christoph Lengauer. And I thought, these guys are pretty smart and they seem to work pretty well together. Yeah, I was even before that, very early on, it was led by a couple of EIRs and we brought in Christoph about a year into the company after it launched. So, so it was very early when I was there. And I joined when the company launched, I ended up joining for that first year. So Christoph was actually coming in right as I was leaving, but I fortunately got to work with him a bit before he left, which was a great experience. And I also, I should say, was fortunate enough to work with him when he was at Novartis. Oh, okay. Okay. Again, coming back to the point about networks and how people can help each other with their complementary expertise. So you leaned in on your domain expertise there at Blueprint. And of course, that company has been quite successful. But then you branched out and you started doing some other things in business development in particular. How did you muster up the confidence or or the interest to make a move over to the business side of the house? <laughs> this is a funny story. So I did, after we did Blueprint and I came back to Third Rock, I worked on a project for quite a while that we had, we did not launch. That was really tough on the business development side. It was a diagnostics company and it was just a really hard business model. And then the next thing I saw after we decided not to progress that forward was the CRISPR work, which scientifically I felt very comfortable with. I felt like I needed to get back to my knitting on understanding molecular biology and structure and CRISPR that obviously had a much bigger impact than that, but I felt very comfortable scientifically with that aspect of it. After working on Editas, what became Editas for quite a while, Alexis actually asked me, what is the role I would like to play if I went and joined Editas? And I, for quite a long time, thought I did not want to do business development. I actually was not excited about it because I thought business development at that time was very much around transactions and contracts and reading licenses, and less around strategy and vision and developing the best path to execute and get this company to a successful place. Anyway, he convinced me otherwise. And I said, okay, I'll try my hand at business development. And fortunately, he had my back, he being Alexis, had my back as well as the other board members. And I went into Editas to drive business development, where it was a great opportunity for me to learn at that point. How useful did you think your scientific background was? Because I've talked with a lot of business development people over the years, and some of them have scientific backgrounds and some not so much. But in either case, you really need to understand that science very well and be able to communicate it clearly and succinctly. How did, how did your background help you do this job? I thought it was the key. I don't think they would have given me that role had I not had the scientific background I could communicate and be comfortable communicating on the science side. You could also, and this is true for a lot of associate jobs in venture, the ability to read a paper, talk to a KOL, and then go from that analysis to thinking about strategy and how does that how does that guide the path the company should be on in order to get there better, faster, stronger. I think that comes from a strong scientific foundation. So for me, that was critical. I agree that if you don't have the science background, you can still be very successful there because you have to learn the science background that's relevant for your topic. Right, because you learn structural biology very deeply. But, you know, here, if you go to work in a company, the domain is going to be something different and you're going to have to learn it. But it's more about how you think about reading the literature critically. What is this telling me? What's not quite there yet? How to think. Okay. So you stayed, you went to, you were at Editas, you w moved over to Relay Therapeutics, another Alexis Borisi founded company, computational biology, publicly traded now. So these are like three pretty well-known companies. Then you made a move to go back, to go into venture capital again at 5 a.m. And this is for the 459 initiative. What was this initiative as you understood it? And why was that an attractive opportunity? Yeah, so so 5AM, as the name suggests, invests in early stage life science companies. And often you will see a lot of phenomenal early stage science that isn't quite 
ready to have a company yet. It still needs some pieces, some ingredients put together. And so that's the basis of 459, which was in existence before I joined 5AM. And that was, it's essentially the de novo company creation arm within 5AM. So it helps put the pieces together so that you have the successful Series A company ready to invest in. And so 5AM does this. It's really cool. They were doing perhaps a couple per fund in a very serial way. It's a very heavy lift. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to do this, to bring a company from an idea through to it's ready to be a Series A investment. And the goal for me joining was to scale this. And so could we build a platform where we could do this multiple times over and over, essentially with the goal of a third of our fund coming through our 459 initiative so that we were positioned to essentially leverage our resources to drive any early science, any technology, new technology insights, biological insights, and drive those into novel medicines. Now, what year was this that you moved over to 5AM? I moved to 5AM in 2018. Okay. So back to why you would want to go back and become a venture capitalist and to make this your job as a partner at a firm that invests in a lot of cool science. What attracted you to that? I think this goes back to that ability to magnify and scale impact. Relay, Editas, Blueprint, all phenomenal companies, individual companies in the in in the setting of a venture capital firm, and certainly in 459, you have the opportunity to do that with many companies. So you really can scale yourself. You can really say, okay, I'm going to support and dry and roll up my sleeves and give my blood, sweat, and tears to advance many companies. And hopefully many of those will be successful. So if your goal is really around impact and developing therapeutics, which is the case at 5am and for me personally as well, it was a great opportunity to do that. Occam is a global executive search firm focused on entrepreneurs and venture capital investors. Occam Global not only recruits CEOs and other C-suite leaders, but also plays a strategic and tactical role in building out optimal boards and advising on governance issues. Whether it be an executive chairman to provide leadership guidance for a first-time CEO or functional experts in R&D, business development, finance, or operations, Occam's broad-based network in life sciences provides a maximal number of potent options to their clients. Occam's board clients can be companies at the earliest stage, those preparing for a public offering, or public companies seeking to enhance an established board. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. When you describe 459, it sounds a little bit to me like people used to use these terms incubator or accelerators to provide some shared resources and networks so that not every startup needs to reinvent the wheel with legal contracts and or maybe they can share lab space or something. Can you just tell me a little bit about like a little bit more about 459, what it is and what it offers to fledgling companies? Sure. It, it does have some of that. It's two sides. So we have the think tank side of the organization, and then we have this platform and resources side of the organization. Um, the think tank side is really around how do we develop a strong investment thesis. And this think tank, which is led by 459, but it, the knowledge is shared across all of 5AM. So we're scouting exciting and emerging areas of science. We're looking for those new technologies, those new biological insights, we're talking to KOLs and pharmas. We're reading the journals. We're having journal clubs via speaker series. We're invite authors in to present work. So we're trying to get very smart in certain areas of science. So we're prepared to drive an investment when we see something. So we'll develop an investment thesis. We'll say, okay, we want to invest in this general area, but here's the gap. And then when we see that gap filled, whether it be in academic science or a more advanced company, we're ready to pounce. And so what's interesting there is 459 is positioned so that if that comes out of academia, we're ready to develop an entire company around it. And if that company or if that concept or gap is filled by a more advanced idea that's already putting together a Series A investment, we're well positioned to invest in it as a Series A company. So it provides us 
scientific flexibility to build or to invest based on the thesis and think tank work that we've done in 459. Okay, so that's the think tank side. There's also these shared resources. What are some of those and why are they important? So the resource piece, I think, is incredibly important. And this is pulling a lot from the operational experience that I've had and so many others in our organization have had as well. What we brought in are resources in a platform. So we have HR, legal, finance, real estate, relationships with CROs, essentially a team of people and or resources in order to drive an entire operational back office of any company. I think importantly, these people, these domain experts sit as members of the NUCO. So they sit within 459 separate from 5am. So like our legal person is not the 5am GCD, it is a 459 designated corporate counsel and wears the NUCO's hat. And so essentially when any new company is starting, you're surrounded by a really strong exec and leadership team to help deploy and move quickly. Is this the place where the bright and plucky postdoc can bring in a raw idea and come work and start a company? Or is that not really a thing you do? It's hard. It's not impossible for sure. I think what we're trying to do here is there's two sides. I guess there's two angles. A new idea, scientific idea, it does have to fit into that investment thesis. So we don't have an unlimited amount of time and budget to seed and incubate ideas. We have a couple of these that we do to, to do each year. It's a super heavy lift to do these. You need this operational team. You also need the, a C-suite or exec person to help drive it. Potentially, that is the postdoc that's driving it. And then you also need a partner on the 5 a.m. side that is willing to be the board member once we invest in the Series A. So the commitment to that Series A investment comes very early in that process. Uh, so we definitely need to ensure that it is the, it's fitting the investment thesis that we're trying to build on. So it's not the free-for-all bunch of ideas that we're having a trit through the end of the seeds. We are trying to build the seed so that we can lead the Series A every time. Okay, so at any given time, there's a couple of these call them proto companies that are in stealth mode. You're not talking about them publicly. They're trying to run some killer experiments to see if this is the kind of thing that has some legs and can graduate, so to speak, with a Series A investment and go out and become its own entity. That's right. I think we know because we do both seed and Series A companies, we know what the ingredients are. So in addition to doing these key de-risking scientific experiments that are the conviction builders, in parallel with that, we're building the great team, we're amassing the IP, we're building the research plan for the Series A. If there's a platform, we're building out the platform, we're prioritizing the indications and the pipeline work. We have a business development strategy that we're putting together, we have a financing strategy that we're putting together. Essentially, we're building the investment we want to make in the Series A. If we saw all that come in a Series A pitch, teams, IP, science, et cetera, we want to be like, that's the company we want to invest in. So that's what we're building. And then we always syndicate our Series A's. And so the goal is we are positioned to lead that Series A and we will always syndicate, co-lead or lead the Series A. And we're sitting on the side of the table with the founders saying, hey, we're driving this Series A and we're going to help build a great syndicate based on the data that as a team we've amassed. And because you've done a lot of this early spade work and you're in position to lead or co-lead, presumably 5AM retains a larger portion of the ownership at the end, right? That's right. We try to align incentives very much with the founding team. So even in a seed, when it's possible, we try to work as a, with a note. And so, and because we always syndicate our Series A's, it is a market-driven event to price that note in the Series A. Um, so we're trying to align of how do we create with the founding team the most value that we can at the Series A. And then as we do co-found the company with a lot of these resources and these expertise, we do have a founding stake as well in the company. So we're working closely as a co-founder with the science leaders. And then hopefully we've aligned incentives to create as much value in that seed. And so in that investing Series A, 
we're co-leading on the financial side, but then we're also part of that sounding. Now, Deb, when I hear VCs talk about alignment a lot and enlarging the pie for everyone, it sounds good, but it seems to imply that there's a lot of misalignment that often goes on. What do you think that is and what are you trying to consciously avoid there and create something different and mutually beneficial over here? Yeah, I think there is a lot of misalignment. I think it happens on a handful of different fronts, but the couple I'll highlight often is has to do with how much a founder or scientific founder wants to engage in a startup or a company and and whether they're a first-time founder or several-time founder. So there's expectations of ownership and equity that do need to match up with how much a founder is engaged. We like to work very closely with founders. We want to have them as, as involved as they can be or want to be. I think that puts us in a nice position to have those aligned incentives. You do see that not always working. And so that's, I think, where things get misaligned. Yeah, expectations sometimes need to be adjusted. This reminds me of an old story an industry person told me once about trying to provide some counsel to an academic entrepreneur who thought he just had this really exciting result and he was just going to call up the FDA and figure out how to file you know, an IND in the next couple weeks or, or month. <laughs> this person obviously didn't understand that there's a lot more that goes into it. Yes. There's a lot. I think this is also where we can rely on our experiences in startup world. It's never as easy and perfect as it is on the, it appears to be on the outside, on the inside, right? There's always challenges that you're facing. There are always hurdles that you're overcoming. And that's where that platform of resources that we have, the domain experts, also comes in very handy. They've solved and faced and addressed a lot of these questions with the other companies they've worked on as well as a lot of the 5am team and operators, because many of us have been operators. So we're not surprised by a lot of these tough things that come in. And you will find that the there is some managing expectations on first-time CEOs or first-time founders who haven't had these issues come up previously and don't realize that some of these hurdles, while big hurdles, are still solvable hurdles, but managing expectations, timelines, and some of the issues that comes up ends up being a big part of our job. What, what do you look for in people who you work with? High-functioning teams, and I'm sure you've heard this before. When Once you've been on a team that's worked really well, you, you have a sense when that's going to happen again. So you're looking for a certain element of transparency, ability to recognize and self-criticize, recognize when you're wrong, self-criticize, and then also problem-solve. I think expertise, scientific expertise or domain expertise is just table stakes to get in. A lot of it is how does one work together and in a team in really tough situations. And so I think you're trying to gauge a lot of that element. How people work together, and especially when times are tough. Now, you've been doing this for about five years at 5 a.m., You've made a few of these investments, and Soma is one. Can you talk a little bit about that one and what excited you about it? Yeah, and Soma is a really exciting company. It's really leveraging excitement around delivery of genetic medicines and then broad access of these medicines. This is one where Hans-Peter Kim, one of the scientific co-founders, had been actively engaged with 5AM on other projects as an advisor, as a KOL. And there had been a tremendous amount of work done in his lab and on Andre Lieber's lab. When that work matured, Hans-Peter called Kush, our managing partner, and said, hey, and I'm, I think this is ready to build a company. And so that, that experience around being able to have a, an injection, essentially, that could reprogram the hematopoietic stem cell system, blood system, is really intriguing. It addresses a lot of the challenges around COGS, which then addresses a lot of the challenges around access. COGS, which is cost of goods sold, all this expensive laboratory work to perform CRISPR edits on cells and then re-inject them back into the body. You're trying to avoid that. Yeah, I think we're trying to provide these complicated medicines. We, we want to make sure that they're accessible all over the world. And so this was a way to do this. This was essentially establishing broad access. And certainly the technology itself was very exciting. The ability to modify uh, an HSC 
you know, with with the vector was very cool. Now, for those who don't know the science, I'm going to take a crack at this and you correct me. But the idea was that if you could inject this CRISPR editing construct and it can edit a hematopoietic blood forming stem cell, that that's sort of like the master cell line that will create other immune cells that do not have the abnormality that you're trying to get rid of. I think that's right. You get the immediate and then you get the entire lineage of progenitors from that HSC modified, which is beautiful. So this is a single shot you take off the shelf and it performs this really incredible sounding edit in the body. That's right. And you can also use it to deliver large pieces of DNA as well. So not just not just CRISPR editing necessarily, but true editing or or gene augmentation. Okay, so this builds off of your longstanding experience, knowledge with CRISPR gene editing, this whole field that has just burst on the scene over the last 10 years, really transforming biology. What what other areas of science and technology are you excited about and potentially investing in? Yeah, I have a handful, and this goes back to that 459 think tank that we continue to build out. So It's an obviously evolving list of items, but a handful that continue to excite me, expanding where we can deliver these genetic medicines. So you certainly don't want to be limited on where you can go. These genetic medicines are for real. Lots of approvals coming up. So it's an area that if you could get to different compartments, different tissues, uh, could be potentially huge. So that's always an area I'm excited, excited about. So delivery of genetic medicines. As a structural biology a structural biologist, it would be challenging for me not to say I'm very excited about what's next in structural biology. The advances that happened in, in your neck of the woods in Seattle with AlphaFold and and understanding the structures of so many proteins, I think there is there's still a lot to do there. It's a what's next. So I'm intrigued and enamored with intrinsically disordered proteins and protein interactions. And what's next there? And of course, there's a big machine learning AI component to that, I'm sure. Now, for people who are not super familiar, AlphaFold is a machine learning system that predicts the structure of a protein based on the underlying amino acid sequence, which is one of these problems that biologists have been trying to solve for 50, 60 years. And now it's happening, maybe not 100% of cases, but a lot of proteins can be predicted with remarkable precision based on just that underlying code. That's right. And I think it's propelled the field, certainly put structural biology in the limelight, which is wonderful. Um, But there is definitely a next wave behind it of what else you can do, what, you know, where the limitations are today there, there's plenty to go after. And so I think it's a huge foundational piece of work. And I'm just very excited about what's going to come next with that work. Better understanding of the targets at a bare minimum. I mean, it ought to speed up the ability to come up with successful small molecules and biologics that bind with the right characteristics to that target. Yep. And then the next wave, of course, with that is is taking these unstructured regions or regions that AlphaFold has challenges with and figuring out how to get some structural enablement of those. And so that's wave two I'm looking forward to. Okay, so del- delivery of genetic medicines and AI-enabled structural biology. These are a couple of your hot areas. What are some others? We've been really spending some time in women's health and the intersection of women's health and immunology. I think there's tremendous amount of work to do here. There's a handful of indications that present very strongly in women over men. And obviously, there are diseases that are unique to women over men. And so that's an area that we're starting to do some deep work in. And I'm excited to to hear from folks, that is an area that several investing groups are getting more and more excited about. That's really interesting, Deb, because I don't hear that very often from venture capital firms. Now, <laughs> some people might have some ideas on why that might be, one of them being there aren't that many women in venture capital. Yeah, it's a huge space, and it's it's really unfortunate that there hasn't been more focus here. But I think it's coming. I know that there are a lot of people talking about it. We certainly have uh, a lot of like-minded syndicate partners who we're discussing this with who are also excited about the area. What is it about some of the science that you've seen there and and the unmet needs that has gotten you excited? 
The science is early. So anyone who's listening to this and has exciting stuff here, please send it. <laughs> the science has a lot of work to do. And that's because the funding hasn't been there. So I think what you're starting to see shift today is there are more people interested in it. The funding is starting to emerge. But I also think there's this understanding of immunology that's happening now. We're getting into the next phase of precision immunology and autoimmunity. And a lot of these diseases and indications fall into to that realm. And so thinking about lupus, MS, things that, that I think I, we recently saw a single cell paper around single cell sequencing of endometriosis. There's a fair amount of work starting to emerge here. And so I think we're just trying to help facilitate and support that work because I think I do think there's a tremendous amount that needs to be done here that hasn't been done yet. Really interesting. This reminds me of one of some of my first learnings about autoimmunity, things like rheumatoid arthritis. About 75% of the cases are women. And why is that? I don't think we know. It's true. And what's another interesting point there is a colleague of mine mentioned who is a rheumatologist that the advice given to people who had rheumatoid arthritis flares was to go get pregnant. So there is a immune tolerance that comes up with pregnancy. So understanding that, that's really fascinating to me. I think there's a lot of interesting things underlying this. But what I think I hear you saying is that some of the new technologies, the tools of the modern lab, like in this case, single cell sequencing, are the kind of thing that make the fields like questions like this more tractable than maybe they once were. I think that's right. I think it's the tools and then the the interest and essentially the funding of this early work that I think hasn't happened historically, but needs to happen. Okay. Are there a couple other areas that are on your radar screen for investment? There's a lot continuing to happen in hemoproteomics, small molecules, still an area that we're interested in. So I think there's definitely more happening here immunology and autoimmunity continues to be an area of interest. These are spurred by some of the tools that are emerging. So these are platform tools that are enabling these next types of chemical matter or insights in these areas. Now, are there any particular therapeutic modalities or therapeutic areas that you've tended to steer clear of? And if so, why? <laughs> I think you won't be surprised when I say IO is tough right now. I mean, oncology is tough right now. But the why is largely because there have been so many studies done and you don't see the expected readouts or they haven't translated as expected until, until or you don't know that they're not translating until late in the clinic, which is phase two proof of concept work. And so that's a very hard model for a venture to get behind. If you don't know if you're going to be successful if the preclinical work isn't guiding you or isn't aligning with what success looks like later, it's very hard to de-risk that early. And so for that reason, I think we have to see some really convincing data there to get excited. That is puzzling that there's still such a high attrition rate in, in oncology, despite all the tools. Yeah, I think, again, I think that's leading a little more towards IO. I think precision oncology is still very interesting. It's just a, a very crowded area, but we like that in that at least you can be driven by biomarkers and genetics and some of the hypotheses there are consistent and translating. I think it's, we get a little bit nervous when they don't translate. And so a lot of the later stage IO work hasn't had that success in translation. Now, I think you participated not too long ago in an event called Science to Startup, where you brought in some bright young entrepreneurs to, to pitch with, in front of you and a number of kind of like-minded VC firms. What were you hoping to accomplish there and, and how did it go? It was an amazing event. I think the groups that, that helped put that together, I, I was more on the periphery that was uh, led by several folks within our firm, although I attended and, and thought it was phenomenal. The idea there was just accessing a lot of exciting science and not just in the Cambridge, Boston area where we typically see it, and then helping mentor these groups to tell a very cohesive story in a pitch event. So it really is around identifying early exciting science and helping shape what a pitch would look like, and then having those folks have th those teams have an opportunity to pitch their science in front of a group of investors. I believe there were something like 125 to 135 applications and then 10 ended up pitching at the events. It was a beautiful event. I, it reminded me why I love 
I love this work. I love this innovation environment. I love the support that this community gives and the mentoring. And it was hosted at the Broad in Cambridge, and it was just a wonderful, tremendous event. So you get exposed to a wide variety of things as a venture capitalist. Uh, But you did have that early experience inside a company all in, at least for a while. Do you think you'll ever go back to an operating role at a company or why might you stay as a VC? That is a really great question. I love operating. I think operating, it goes back to that initial, your hands are in it, you're doing something, you're seeing the direct outcome. Right now, that is scratched right now based on the 459 work I'm doing. So I'm getting to be an operator in many of these 459 new codes. So today that itch is scratched. I definitely think, though, there is a tremendous amount of satisfaction that I gain from operating. So never say never. I love where I am now. I love 459 and being able to get that operating experience through 459 every day, though. So you get both depth and breadth in this role. That's right. It's my perfect job. (laughs) Okay. So you said that 459 existed before you got there, but you've clearly taken it up another level or so it seems in five years. What do you hope to be able to say in your wildest dreams 10 years from now that you would have accomplished here? Our North Star, I mean, this is 5am as a whole, is, is bringing patients great transformative therapies. We've done 20, we have 20 approvals in our pipeline, and I just want that to be many more. And I'm hoping that many of those come out of 459, but also 5 a.m. I just, the ability to take early exciting science and translate it to therapies that are impactful for patients uh, is a real privilege. And I want to be able to continue to do that. And when you say impactful, it's both in terms of the magnitude of benefit for an individual patient. But also, I think I heard you say earlier, the making more of these innovations more widely accessible to more patients who can benefit. That's right. Absolutely. I think that access is a a huge challenge. Um, These are, you know, the, the more complicated the medicines are, often the access becomes more and more limited. And I think part of our job is making impactful medicines that are accessible to patients. And so it's how many people can you impact? And that has an access. For sure. Yeah. And so the next CAR-Ts or gene editing therapies, probably not going to cost half a million or two million per patient. That's not the kind of company you're trying to build today anyway, for thinking 10 years out. That's right. I think we really want to be transformative for patients and access have patients have access to important therapies. And I don't want cost to be a barrier. Fascinating stuff. Deb Palestron, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks for having me, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.